you don't want a company that just lives off short-term goals and short-term results. You want something, you want to build something sustainable in the long term. And building an edge and reducing your customer acquisition costs are, are key for successful companies. Now, those who fail, I think, do all like the opposite of all that in many ways. And these are like companies that tend not to listen to advice to their customers, to their employees, and they take their time in failing. If you realize that things are not working out, cut your losses, fail fast. Like failing fast is not something to be ashamed of. It happens. And so a failure that's just derailed over time just makes things worse. Hey, this is Danny, and welcome to the Spend Culture Stories podcast. You know, we're not just another boring finance or procurement podcast. We explore the sometimes challenging stories and learnings when people, spend, and organizations meet, and how to drive sustainable growth while still balancing control and agility. We have vulnerable, honest, and raw conversations with only the most forward-thinking CFOs, finance executives, and procurement leaders who are challenging the status quo, that the way we've done it is just not enough. This is Spend Culture Stories. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Spend Culture Stories. This is Danny, and we have a very special guest today um, joining us all the way from Toronto, Canada. So his name is Wajdi Gusup, and he is the Director of Finance and Operations at Pluto, a Toronto-based SaaS fintech startup that digitalizes and streamlines the way SMBs manage their financial operations. What I love about Watchday as well is that he's a ex-VC with a passion for working with tech startups. So he doesn't just know how to work in startups, but also how to advise them. And he's graduated with distinction from the Richard Ivey School of Business, and he also holds a Chartered Financial Analyst designation. Hi, Watchday. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me, Danny. Appreciate it. Of course. Did you want to just give a quick background to yourself for the audience before we jump in? Yeah, sure. Happy to uh, to do that. So, as Danny said, so I am the director of finance and ops at, uh, at Pluto. I joined the company in uh, October 2019, and it's been a great ride so far. I started working in, in finance at Pluto, and then took some operational uh, duties as well. And um, that's it. I'm married. I have a little 14 month old who keeps me busy while not working. Mm-hmm. And uh, just hoping everyone's safe and healthy during these crazy times, really. Yeah, definitely. It's probably really hard to also do these meetings while you have a young kid at home. (laughs) Exactly, yeah. I always feel for the working dads. (laughs) We manage. We tend to manage somehow. Um, They teach us to be better managers, actually, uh, kids. So I've learned a lot from my kid about how to do things at work, actually. So you'd be surprised how both things feed off each other. That's so amazing. Our last interview, we did it with our VP Finance, and he was talking about one of his most embarrassing moments was having like a board meeting and then his baby puking on him. So I thought that was like (laughs) an amazing moment. Yeah, that's pushing it, I guess. But uh, yeah, interesting. Yeah. (laughs) So this is kind of like our warm-up question for all the guests. So that's his answer when I asked him, what was your most embarrassing moment. So if you don't mind, we would love to also hear yours before we get started. More like embarrassing moments, right? <laughs> um, that's an interesting one because there's one moment that just 
somehow keeps repeating itself. So every time I, I go out with my wife on a date, um, we go to a restaurant and it comes the time for drinks, right? And my wife, she loves to drink basic stuff like whiskey or, or beer. And I always tend to go for like the cocktails, like what's a new cocktail that I haven't tried yet or what's special that's done by the bartender. And so we put our orders and every time the waiter comes or the waitress comes, she or he put the whiskey or the beer in front of me and the cocktail in front of my wife, right? Because the, the preconception is that I ordered the whiskey or the beer. And then often that cocktail tends to be like, it has fruits on it and whatever, is, right? So I end up with like that funny looking cocktail and my wife ends up with the whiskey. So it's always an embarrassing moment. This always happens. It's so hilarious. <laughs> it's great though, because you're kind of squashing the preconceived gender norms, right? Well, thank you so much for sharing that. I personally also really like to order stronger drinks and people are always like, are you sure you want this? Yeah. So I can definitely relate. <laughs> yeah. So just jumping in on the finance angle, um, just wondering how you got started in your career in finance. You know, what made you pursue a career in this field? And was there anything that you wish you knew before you went into this whole world of being a finance leader? Well, I, I mean, I started as a kid wanting to be like a car designer. Uh, then that evolved into like an architect. And then I joined the uh, university, ended up trying to become an economist. Eventually, I was like, okay, no more changes. Where am I going to make money, right? So, mm -hmm. and then, you know, I was influenced by people around me. I, I was also very influenced by, like, my brother. Um, he worked in finance. And, and I was like, this, this is a good field to be in. Like, I can leverage a lot of my strengths in this field. So that's, like, back in when I was in university. And then I worked in professional services and all that. And then becoming a finance operator, uh, a company today rather than professional services or venture capital was like a natural progression i think it was about time for me to jump into on the other side of the table to fill that gap in my experience to learn something new and, and to be in the trenches and so i wanted to like develop that kind of expertise and be, be known to be known for something right like what are you good at it's always hard to answer that question when you're in professional services because you jump from one thing to another, you tend to be a generalist. So for me, it was a natural progression over time. And some things, you know, they just happen. It's a great field. I enjoy it a lot. It's very strategic and very multifaceted. So I get to like try different things. It's not, no day is the same. I think um, it's something that a lot of people can relate to where you might not really know in the beginning, you know, you change a few steps, but yeah. then you kind of get little breadcrumbs where it leads you down an eventual path where you're like, oh, I feel like this is the right path for me. So that's really interesting about your background. I would love to talk a little bit more about the VC side later, but uh, we can jump into the next question a little bit more about Pluto, actually. How would you say your experience is like working at Pluto during the whole you know, COVID-19 situation and the downturn? How did the company adapt? And were there any sacrifices that you had to make during this time? Well, um, I remember... We were one of the first companies that went uh, to working from home uh, mode, right? So we took that decision very quickly. Mm -hmm. And uh, I remember like in the beginning, we were trying to live our lives as if it's the same, right? Nothing has changed. It's just that we're working from home. And we were clinging to that idea for a while. And then eventually we realized that no, things are different. People have fears. Communication is different. Uh, dynamics are different. The way you, you live your life outside work is also different. So 
when we grasped that idea and we understood it fully, I think we realized that no, things are really different. We, when we embraced that change, things started to look a bit easier because you kind of give up and you say, okay, this is the reality in front of me. How can we make the best out of it? So uh, early on, in like early April, uh, we decided to like revamp our benefits. We put more uh, emphasis on medical related stuff. We then eventually introduced uh, cover for meditation apps, right? We started doing you know, sit-downs at the end of the day on, on some days, right, where we mm -hmm. get together on, on video and we, we talk about you know, what's working, what's not working. And we continue to have, like, our town halls. We continue to have, like, our one-on-one -on -one meetings, our team meetings. Um, so it's been, you know, working well. Now, in terms of sacrifices, I would say we started the year very aggressive. We wanted to hire a lot of people. We wanted to, like invest in sales and marketing a lot we want we had like great plans in the budget and q1 was a very good quarter for us and then we were like okay now that covid happened you know our business luck wasn't affected but we didn't know where we we're going like how long is this going to last how will will it downturn and in, in kpis happen eventually so we kind of slowed down um hiring we slowed down a lot of initiatives uh, simply because we were scared of the unknown um, so that's the only like sacrifice i think we didn't invest as fast as as much as we wanted i think it's really awesome that you know you've um, reallocated some of the spend to for example you mentioned meditation apps that's so great because i feel like that was one of the first things where i thought about i'm like how am i gonna stay sane yeah. how am i gonna make sure i can dedicate myself to work but also be okay with being stuck at home so I feel like that is something that goes a long way. It's like a long-term benefit for all of the employees as well. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I know a lot of companies, they have to cut spend on a lot of auxiliary things. For example, like gym, because you can't go anyways. And some yeah. other companies cut budgets on marketing spend, like trade shows. They're not going to happen anyways, right? Yeah. So when we uh, obviously started, like we were in like cost containment uh, mode, so we but like benefits was one area where we thought we should double down. So we, uh, our spend on benefits increased and it made sense in a way, right? Because it's, it's a hot topic now. It's, it's a, you know, top of mind. So while we did cut on a lot of things, this was an area where we invested actually. And that's really great because I feel like that also builds up that trust between the team where it's like if we get through this difficult time together, but also we treat you well, they're going to repay you with uh, two times right? That's really the long-term benefit of that. Yeah, hopefully. Yeah, Yeah. Exactly. seems like you guys have a really great company culture there at Pluto. When you're a company at our stage, we're still building the culture in many ways and it's changing all the time. I mean, Pluto today is very different than Pluto of a year ago. So that's what I love about like companies of this size is that they're always changing and we're, you know, building the culture. Right. Yeah. And this COVID experience, you know, taught us how to stick together, how to work it out as a team. And uh, we learned a lot from it as a company. Right. We are going to get out of this much stronger and we're always going to look back at this stage as, as a learning stage. And so, you know, that's how we, we're looking at it. But obviously, there's still a lot of fear. There's a lot of uncertainty. There's a lot of change that happened and so we're always on our toes right we're always thinking of like, what could happen next like, well tomorrow is not going to look like today so we're always like very diligent and very uh, mindful of how, that things can go 
back to like mid-March, right? You know, great, today we can go out and walk and, and do things, but you know, anything can turn around anytime. Right? So we're a bit That's more true. ready for surprises, right? We prepared ourselves not to be more ready for surprises. And everyone's aware of that in a way. It is what it is. You try to make the best out of the situation. That's the attitude that's going to help us win, not only as a company, but as a country, humanity overall. It's definitely like a very humanizing and bonding moment where you realize that everybody's going through very similar things. And at the same time, you get stronger as a group together, too. Exactly. How many um, employees do you guys have right now, by the way, out of curiosity? There are uh, 23 people. We have few co-ops joining us uh, you know next week as well oh, so nice. we're on like 25 26 people yeah that's a really exciting time like it's still a little bit early but at the same time you're building it out love that stage yeah so in the stage how would you describe because we talked a little bit about like you know the company culture how would you describe the spend culture of pluto what are the attitudes belief and processes around spending for the company yeah great question so we follow a very uh, decentralized model we empower the functions and the managers to own that vendor relationship mm-hmm. from you know the research and from the early days of figuring out if she should work with a vendor up to like the account management side, right? So finance is really just there to to help negotiate, to execute the payments, control the cash, and to do like a proper onboarding process with the right approvals. And so we act as like more of a checks and balances, right? And that decentralized approach really works because it, it empowers uh, the functions to really go out there and try to get the best deal because they're going to be the ones using whatever tool or whatever supplier or whatever contractor we're working with. So they're going to they own that whole relationship, right? Mm-hmm. It just works better. And in a way, we, we celebrate the wins, right? So if we renew a contract with a discount, if we uh, negotiate better deals, we celebrate it as a team. And the people are rewarded accordingly, right? So, and, and this like gives people a lot of empowerment because they feel like they own this, right? And they were able to buck in savings for the company uh, themselves so that it's not all centralized, you know, with finance. Now, when we do the budget every year, don't get me wrong, like people come and you know, say like, we want to have these like 10 extra, you know, tools or I want to increase the spend from this to this or whatever, right? And and we always end up doing these internal negotiations. So we do these, like I really call it internal negotiation because um, that's what we're trying to do. Right? You have to sell it to me first. It's like you're pitching something, right? And so if I'm going to try to pick holes in the contract, I'm going to try to pick holes in the terms or in the, in the pricing or in the cancellation or whatever. So we try to do this as a checks and balances just so that we make sure everyone's on the same page. So we have like a very like solid process. To do that right so we have to research two or three vendors to make sure you did the research and you're sure of if that spending is benchmarked properly to what you would get if you worked with another supplier and then um, you know we do all the doc- documentation everything and so we have like a very rigid process to do that and and with covid we learned that we realized how it was a good thing to do to have introduced that right because we were able to quickly understand the spend and see where can we, you know, book in some savings for the company. Totally. Do you mind walking me through like a little bit more detail about this? Because I know speaking to a few other earlier stage finance leaders, that's one thing that they've struggled in is figuring out a documented 
process that works for the rest of the team. So what exactly do you guys do when it comes to trying to get a spend through the door? Yeah, totally. I mean, um, there is the initial state when you discover a gap, like I need a tool or I need to work with a, with a contractor or I need to. So you have to like this, um, there's a gap today, right? Mm-hmm. And so you have to then uh, voice that gap and build some kind of early analysis as to if we did get this tool, you know, what are the cost benefits, right? Just overall in terms of what are the benefits. So then we give like an initial green light. Um, that initial green light would allow the manager to go ahead and then like do some more detailed diligence, right? So they go out there, they research the space, they, they shortlist five vendors, right? So there are five tools that would allow us to fill this gap. Now imagine if they did all this without having the initial green light. It's just wasted time. Yeah. So that's why we do like the first checkpoint. And then the second checkpoint is when they present. It could be like a simple email or a quick like 15-minute call, right? It's not doesn't have to be something too complicated, but they just present, you know, here, here are the players, and I've picked this one because of one, two, three, right? And that's when we give the second green light. Okay, looks good. Then if something requires a bit more like engineering time, integration time, onboarding time, if it's a bit of a complex uh, situation, then we go through that before we sign the contract. Or if it's something simple, we just like sign the contract. And uh, we're all like digital. We do everything paperless. Uh, everything's on DocuSign. Everything is like properly uh warehouse so that we can always refer back to those agreements right mm. and then um, there's a form that people have to fill like okay so th- now that the contract is signed and everything uh, there's a form that needs to be filled so that we know where to book that vendor in the accounting software really right um, and we have a record so did we do this yes did we do this yes right did we research did we negotiate did we so there's always a, a part that I missed uh, telling you is that once we give the second green light, there's usually like a pricing there. And we always go back and say, okay, try to negotiate mm. or try to get a better price. There's always this concept of try to negotiate, get a better price. Um, and then if they do great, if not, then we hold another meeting or another quick call to say, okay, we couldn't negotiate or we were able to negotiate. And that's like the final offer. So once everything's said and done, we, 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 they fill this form. It's a digital form. And uh, I just send it to our controller. And then she knows where to book this in, in, the, in the financials. So that's the process. And then we try to stick to some, um, uh, you know, rules of thumb. So we like, like, cancellation policies that are in our favor. We like to pay. We don't mind paying yearly if we book in some savings. Um, so there are some like rules of thumb that we that we adhere to, um, and then when we come to the budget, um, because we were involved and the managers were involved, it becomes a very easy discussion, right? We we pull up the the vendor matrix. We call it the matrix because it's literally the vendors and then under which functions do they fall, and then we have a discussion like, okay, when is the renewal? Let's try to like budget for a five percent increase or a five percent decrease or something, right? So the budgeting discussion becomes much easier. Uh, once you do this process with all your vendors. I love that. And then when the negotiations come, I have a manager on the team that loves negotiating with vendors. He loves it. <laughs> and he actually asks others, like if, they, if you want help negotiating with your vendors, 
let me know. I'll help you. Nice. So that's how much he loves to like talk and get a good deal. And, you know, we give high fives to people who do that and who are successful with that. Thank you so much for sharing that because I feel like that's where a lot of people get stuck on. I've seen, you know, 200, 300 people companies where they don't really have a very clear process where you have like meetings where people are like, well, why did my spend not get approved? Or maybe they fill it out like a form, but then at the same time, there weren't as many checkpoints as you mentioned. So there's always a lot of miscommunication. They do so much work, but then at the same time, at the very end, they get rejected. So it also is like, it hurts them from a trust angle because they're like, I did all the due diligence. Why is it that it didn't go through? So I'm really glad that you shared your process because I feel like this will inspire a lot of people to really put in more checkpoints within it. Totally. So I really wanted to understand, because you used to be an ex-VC, from a financial perspective, what do you look for in successful startups? And what are the ones that normally fail? What are like the warning signs that you see? That's one of the questions that are very hard to answer because there is no magic formula, right? I mean, when we were, when I was in VC and I used to like screen companies and do due diligence on companies, there's always like this thought that, okay, what's the perfect formula? And let me plug in the numbers and see if the result is yes or no, right? It just, unfortunately, it doesn't work that way. I mean, it really depends on the objectives of that company and the culture that's driving those objectives. And both have to work together. And you have to remember, like, when you go on TechCrunch and and you hear about, like, oh, this company raised this much money, or you often start correlating success with funding or with speed. Like this company was able to do it in a year. Oh, awesome. But that's, these are really the exceptions, right? Most of the times it's, it's really a marathon. I mean, it took Michael Jordan eight years to win his first NBA title. And the businesses are the same. Like it takes a lot of time and effort and perseverance to, to really accomplish uh, great results. Um, so some of the things that I think, you know, successful companies have done is just being very results oriented. They execute yeah. well, right? So it's all, it's all about execution and fast decision-making. You know, if you're embroiled in bureaucracy and then like crazy reporting lines in the early days, you, you get stuck. You don't move forward, right? You have to build like a product that customers want. So you have to hear the, hear the customer and do it in tandem with the customer. And there can no, be no shortcuts on talent and training. Like you have to hire good talent and train that talent. You can't just expect people to come and just do work, right? You have to mm-hmm. commit to training and to development. And as a CEO and a CFO or like first line managers, you have to like be very close to a pool of investor money so that you can quickly raise around, you can quickly have access to funding because you can build a great thing, but then you get stuck with no fund. So you have to always have this network and this connection. Um, and you'll notice that I didn't mention sales and marketing because I've always thought of sales and marketing as like being on like fifth gear, right? Like, okay, now let me give me some money. I can spend like everything on sales and marketing and just scale. And that's how it works, right? But oftentimes successful companies rely on their product and they put like uh, hacks in their product. You let the product sell itself. Uh, that's why you hear a lot of investors talk about network effects. You hear a lot of investors uh, talk about these things like features or in-app features that 
allow this product to scale, right? Through referrals. So there's a lot of ways where the product can grow itself before you spend a dime on sales and marketing. And all that is for the purpose of really just reducing your, your CAC and getting that competitive edge, right? Mm-hmm. So that you build like a resilient company over the long term. You don't want a company that just lives off short-term goals and short-term results. You want something, you want to build something sustainable in, in the long term. And building an edge and reducing your customer acquisition costs are, are key for success in the company. Now, those who fail, I think, do all like the opposite of all that in many ways. And these are like companies that tend not to listen to advice to their customers, to their employees. And they take their time in failing. If you realize that things are not working out, cut your losses, fail fast. Like failing fast is not something to be ashamed of. It happens. And so a failure that's just derailed over time just makes things worse. So these are like just like high level stuff, but I really think it really, there is no magic formula. I think that's a really important distinction to make. It's the short term versus long term, especially in times of crisis like this. Because I feel like, you know, when you're in a fear state, sometimes it's about grasping onto, you know, what we're able to control, but sometimes you can't. So I think what you mentioned about having like a longer term vision and building a more sustainable product, like that's super important, especially in these times. Exactly. Yeah. So what do you think are the biggest challenges that a tech finance leader has to face in the next two to three years post, you know, this whole situation with COVID? I think it's definitely challenging because, I mean, look at all the business literature out there. None of it was centered around remote work or, or uh, working from home all the time, right? It was always the, the exception rather than the rule. Um, so, I mean, as leaders today, we have to really be open-minded about a new field, a new playing field, and we have to really be resilient and be able to adapt to it, right, um, in order to, to survive. Communication is different. Team dynamics are different. Yeah. Uh, second thing is, like, you need a bit of foresight and a bit of wisdom. Even in normal times, companies rarely, if ever, meet their budgets. So think of it today where you don't even know if next month there's going to be another lockdown or not. So that ability to forecast and to have that foresight into the future becomes even harder now. Right. So that's a skill that leaders have to really hone down on. And the third thing is like there's a natural tendency to be tough sometimes at work because you want people to get stuff done. Right. Yeah. Now things are different. Like you have to take into account that it's a different world. Right. So you have to be a better listener. You have to it, it pushes us to do the things that we should do in normal times. Right. It's just that now it's, it's even more required. I mean, in normal times, you can be a good listener four days out of five. One day, if you're having a bad day, it's okay. Not yeah. to be a good but now you're forced to like be a good listener every day. You have to be very aware of what people are going through outside work. You have to be very mindful of that soft side of the, of the job because it's super important, right? And it doesn't affect only your employees. It also affects your customers. Yeah. In our uh, support channels, like when we talk to customers, it's different now. Those customers are themselves going through, you know, working from home and trying to, you know, make ends meet, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Now it's just a bit more delicate situation for everybody. Um, So these are the three things I would say are like the key challenges for leaders. 
Yeah, I think empathy is so important right now because you're not able to be with them in person, right? So you are not able to read their body cues. They might be smiling on the camera, but you don't know what they're going through. So I'm really glad that you mentioned that because I think mental health is so important these times. Totally. So I know we're um, ending the interview here soon. Um, so maybe we can end it off with one last question where we also like to ask all our guests. If you had a billboard to describe you as a person, what do you think it would say? <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. It's interesting because like after being a dad now for 14 months, maybe the right thing to say here is that I'm, I continue to be like demanding. So there's like, more, like demanding at work and demanded yeah. at home, right? <laughs> So uh, at you know at work I, I I expect a lot from people and I have high expectations and I, I like to get things done uh, quickly and at, like good quality. So I'm always like pushing people I work with to like go that extra mile and so I'm very demanding in a sense. But I think I do it for the better of everyone so that people develop, I develop, the company as a whole develops, right? And and we all grow. So I'm demanding in that sense. At home, I'm demanded, you know, because, you know, in Canada, you know, getting help is very expensive, right? So yeah. it's often just me and my wife and we are trying to raise a 14-month-old. So oftentimes, you know, my wife calls me at four o'clock, please come oh, home. Oh, no. <laughs> no, today is a bad day. So I go home and I help. And then at 9 p.m., I open the laptop again. After oh, the man. So it's been like interesting in that sense. Yeah, demanding at work and demanded at home. <laughs> I love that though. My 2020. Yeah, that is so real. Like in, in these times when everybody's like working from home, trying to raise kids, trying to like jump on Zoom meetings. It's a hard balance to have. But I, I can imagine it's also extremely rewarding since it's like, you know, the first year and a half of your child's life. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and, you know, I believe I believe in the like the Ferris wheel uh, metaphor here is like, so people think of like always work and life balance. Mm-hmm. But when people ask Jeff Bezos about, you know, what he thinks about that, he's like really more in the Ferris wheel metaphor, which is if you spend quality time at home and you enjoy your work outside the office, so time with the family, time with social, you become a better manager. You become better at work. If you're enjoying your work and you're doing you know, great things at work, that translates into you becoming a better dad, a better parent, a better family. So they feed off each other. I always used to think of it as like work-life balance. So they're two different things and I treat them separately and I have the different, but they actually feed off each other. And that observation and that me being convinced of that opened up a lot of doors for me to, to really think about these things differently, right? And I'm now at much more ease uh, being a parent and, and, you know, committing time at home and work. Like I, I think of them as one rather than as two different things. Yeah, that's a really interesting perspective to have, actually. And it makes so much sense because when I have a bad day at work, sometimes, you know, when I'm at home, I take it out on like my partner or when I'm on a phone with my parents. So that's really something to think about. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Wajdi, for this amazing interview. And, you know, I learned a lot from you. And I really hope to speak to you again soon and hear more about, you know, what's going on at Pluto. Thank you very much. And, uh, you know, at, at Pluto, we're very close to the theme of your podcast about spend. I mean, we are a tool for that. So I can relate to the topic. And, and thank you for inviting me to be part of this 
best of luck with the baby and you know balancing the work life I guess Ferris wheel that you mentioned thank you you too thanks for tuning in to another episode of today if you like this podcast please make sure to subscribe so you don't miss another great guest we'd also appreciate it if you give us a five-star review on iTunes for the Apple listeners out there this podcast is sponsored by Procurify a spend management solution that is making managing business spend simple I know there's still a lot of you that are using spreadsheets, credit cards, and expense forms, or a mix of the above. Perhaps you're still using a procurement module in your ERP that is clunky and outdated. Procurify helps you implement proactive controls so that purchases are tracked and approved by the right person before it hits accounts payable. Never have to worry about a surprise invoice ever again. There's a reason why over 400 customers around the world love us. Our award-winning, easy-to-use system is loved by people everywhere. It's actually a purchasing system that your employees will actually want to use, believe it or not. Check us out at Procurify.com. So that's www.procurify.com and mention the podcast for a sweet listener special on our packages.